You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us take our Bibles and open them together to the book of Kings. 1 Kings 11, beginning at verse 26 and ending at verse 14. Also, Jeroboam, son of Nabat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zeredah. And his mother's was a widow named Zeruah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the supporting terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David, his father. Now, Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take ten pieces for yourself, For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I would do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in my ways, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my statutes and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, and who observed my commands and statutes. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping My statutes and commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty, as enduring as the one I built for David, and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt Egypt, to Shishak the king, And stayed there until Solomon's death. This afternoon we continue our series on 1 Kings and we come to 1 Kings chapter 12, the verses 25 to 33. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return 
to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Jeroboam built shrines and high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, I am sure that most of you are familiar with the term knockoff. I learned about it in my university days when I went on a trip to New York City. There, a street vendor convinced me to buy this really nice-looking, sparkling name-brand watch for a song. I bought it, and I proudly strapped it on my wrist and thought the world of it. Only on returning to Canada, it died and it never came back to life again. Now, that's a knockoff. It's something that looks genuine, attractive. It's something that you buy with a certain degree of expectation, only it does not last, because it's not the real thing. And of course, since those early years, I've come across a lot more knockoffs, and probably you have as well. Countries like Mexico and especially China are full of them. Everything with a famous name attached to it lends itself to imitation or duplication and is readily available. Rolex watches, Mont Blanc pens, Lee jeans, Gucci handbags and purses, the list goes on and on. The world is literally swimming in knockoffs. But not just the knockoff of things, for there is also what may be called knockoff religions. These are religions, too, that claim to be the real thing, look in some ways like the real thing, goes through what appear to be the real motions, but are not the real thing at all. At bottom, they're counterfeit. Yes, and to some extent, that's also what we find in our text of this afternoon. King Jeroboam creates a knockoff religion in the nation of the ten tribes. In some ways, it sounds real, smells real, looks real, feels real, but is not real at all. It's as phony as they come. 
And so as we continue our mini-series on 1 Kings, let's take a closer look and learn. I preach to you Jeroboam's alternative religion, or if you will, Jeroboam's knockoff religion. And we're going to look at the fear, first of all, that drives him to create it. Secondly, the solution that, that comes to him. And finally, the actions that condemn him. Well, beloved, last week we paid quite a bit of attention to Rehoboam, the son and successor to King Solomon, and what a disappointment he is. He lacks all the smarts and the wisdom of his dad. He doesn't know how to distinguish between good advice and rotten advice. He's clueless when it comes to ruling a kingdom. He struts like a rooster, talks like a windbag, and moves about like a drunken sailor. And the result is that in very quick order, he manages to lose most of his kingdom. Instead of having some understanding and compassion for his overworked, overtaxed, and overregulated citizens, he has none. No sympathy, no help can be expected from him. And instead, he tightens the screws and he makes matters far worse. And if you ask why he does all of that, well, at bottom, it's all about ego. Rehoboam wants to make a name for himself. He's not content to remain forever in the shadow of his famous father. He wants to be his own man, to make his own mark, and to win his own laurels. But yet it's not to be. By the time we come to 1 Kings 12, verse 24... At the beginning of our text, his kingdom has shrunk drastically. All that King Rehoboam has left is one tribe, or actually two tribes, the predominant one being Judah and the little, little one being Benjamin. And all the rest have departed. But where have they gone? Well, they have gone and they have placed themselves under the rulership of a certain Jeroboam. Now, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, those two names, of course, have a lot in common. And maybe you've tripped up on them as well in your Bible reading. And sometimes we ask ourselves, is that coincident? Is that accident? Well, I think sometimes it's rather intentional. For as we shall see, there are a lot of similarities between these two characters. And indeed, whether or not it's Jeroboam or Rehoboam, They both end up spelling trouble. So now, who is Jeroboam? Well, we first learn about him, and that's why we've read Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11. There we are told that he was one of King Solomon's officials. He was a man that appears of some social standing. He was also an able man, and King Solomon noticed this and promoted him. And then it's hard to determine what happened next. Did the prophet Ahijah speak to him and then did he rebel against King Solomon or did he first rebel against the king and then have the prophet speak to him? It's pretty hard to figure out. But what's not hard to figure out is the message that the prophet Ahijah brings. 
For this prophet of the Lord comes face to face, it says, outside of Jerusalem with Jeroboam. And when he does so, he's wearing a new robe, which he takes off and then tears into 12 pieces, of which Jeroboam selects 10. Now, that's rather unusual, and of course, that's one of those prophetic, symbolic actions that you often find in the Old Testament. Sometimes you don't hear the explanation right away, but in this case, you do. The Lord has had enough, the prophet says, of King Solomon's idolatry. King and people are worshipping Ashtoreth, Kamosh, Molech. They've not kept the laws of the Lord. They're not walking in his ways. They've all but forsaken him and forgotten about him. And the result is, the prophet says, the judgment is coming. The kingdom will be divided. Jeroboam will become ruler of most of the kingdom, and Rehoboam will rule over what's left. And the only reason why he will rule over what's left is because the Lord is faithful. He promised that David would always have a lamp before him in Jerusalem. That one day David would receive a great messianic son. And that his name would endure. And so amidst all the ruin and fiasco, a glimmer of hope remains. At the same time, however, notice that Jeroboam is promised quite a lot by the Lord. If Jeroboam will do what God commands, will walk in his ways, do what is right, then the Lord will be with him. I notice he will even build him a dynasty. And it will be a dynasty that lasts and lasts. Now, somehow in due time, King Solomon hears about all of this and he tries to kill Jeroboam. He fails, however, and Jeroboam flees, as so many people do, to Egypt. But now he's back. He was back last week when he spoke to Rehoboam in the presence of all Israel and ascended the throne of the ten tribes once Rehoboam's answer backfired so badly. And he is back in our text as well. And indeed, notice he's now building. Verse 25 says that he fortified Shechem and Peniel, two rather strategic places in his new kingdom. But that's not all, for notice Jeroboam is also doing a little bit of self-talk here. As he builds and as he fortifies, he worries. He worries about the loyalty of his people. He worries that they'll go back to the house of David. After all, had the Lord not said, I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. And it was the not forever part that really bothered him and ate away at him. 
And meanwhile, there's another problem. There's an Achilles heel problem. It had to do with that temple in Jerusalem and with the people going there regularly to offer sacrifice. Jeroboam may be in charge today, but what about tomorrow? What's going to happen with all of this constant border hopping and going over to Jerusalem and to the temple? What damage will that not do in the long run? Slowly the people will forget about their beef with King Rehoboam and they'll be pulled back into the fold. And then what will become of Jeroboam? He will be dead meat. So Jeroboam is worried. And you know, humanly speaking, he has every right to be worried. If we were walking in his sandals, we would be worried too. This isn't a good situation. It's filled and fraught with danger. But notice... And notice this well, it's only filled with danger as long as one keeps God out of the equation. On a purely human level, all of this spells trouble and future disaster. But had the Lord not promised a kingdom to Jeroboam and even a dynasty? Is his future not secure with the Lord? And isn't that not what really counts? You see, the problem here is that Jeroboam allows self-talk to dominate over God-talk. He permits his fears to overshadow the promises of Almighty God. He puts more stress on what his weak heart tells him than on what God tells him. And in so doing, he shows right away that he's nowhere near the caliber of that other king, the great king, Jesus Christ. You know, beloved, whenever you look at these kings of Israel, you always need to think of that other perfect king whom we serve and worship today. And he too had his fears. At times he too engaged in self-talk. Think, for example, of the Garden of Gethsemane. But, But more than anything else, what sets our Savior apart and our great king apart is that he constantly engages in God talk. Constantly he brings all of his fears and burdens and concerns and sufferings to the Heavenly Father. This and Jeroboam should have done the same. He should have asked God for help in sorting out the Jerusalem temple puzzle. And we as well. In all of the hardships, the problems, the challenges of daily living need to be on guard against too much self-talk and practice a lot more God-talk. Do you have a problem? Do you have a burden? Do you have a care? 
a puzzle, a hurdle. Take it to the Lord. Allow Him to show you the way. Look to Him for an answer. Don't listen to all the voices within. But listen to that voice that comes down to you from above. But notice Jeroboam, King Jeroboam doesn't go there. The verses 28 to 30 of our text indicate that too much self-talk leads to self-made solutions. Of course, it has to be acknowledged that before he goes there, he, he gets some advice. Verse 28 says, after seeking advice, the king made. Whose advice did he seek? Old men, young men, elders, friends, relatives, who knows? But yet one thing becomes very clear is that Jeroboam is just as miserable at handling advice as Rehoboam is. He doesn't know how to properly seek it, weigh it, or implement it. For what's this advice all about that Jeroboam receives? Well, it's about bulls and calves. He's advised to make two golden calves. And in time he does so. He sets one up in Bethel in the south of his domain. He sets another one way up north in Dan. And some of you have been there and you know it's far, far in the north. And after doing that, he says to the people, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, on the surface, that may sound reasonable. It sounds as if Jeroboam is concerned about his people. Going all the way to Jerusalem takes time and costs money and is not without danger. So, so let's people find a better solution. That's the way it comes across in the Niv text. But that's probably not what he's really saying because the Hebrew seems to indicate something like enough of this nonsense of going up to Jerusalem. Don't be bothered to go to Jerusalem anymore. In any case, Jeroboam presents his people with an alternative. A knockoff alternative. Forget about Jerusalem. Go instead to Bethel. If you live in the south, go to Dan. If you live in the north, that's much closer, more convenient. And remember, these places have history on their side. Did our forefather Jacob, that great patriarch, not meet with God at Bethel? Remember the staircase with the angels? And did our fathers not worship in Dan during the days of the judges? So go there. And make use of these nice, new, big, shiny, brawny bulls. And after all, you did that before. Don't you remember what happened during the wilderness wanderings and, and how the high priest Aaron made a nice, 
big golden bull so that the people of Israel could worship the Lord. You know, it sounds like the real thing. Sounds like the proper thing, the reasonable thing. Oh, and there are, by the way, I, I might add, there are all kinds of scholars who support this, this thing. They, they claim that what Jeroboam is doing here is really some liturgical renewal kind of stuff. And furthermore, they assert that the original account of what really happened was edited by some guys in Jerusalem who wanted to put Jeroboam in a really bad light. And so they say these bulls weren't so bad. They're not meant to represent Yahweh. They're mere pedestals, tools or means to worship Yahweh. Minimizing, justifying, rationalizing, it's all here. And you know, it's still here today. A while ago, I made some negative comments about our shiny new local Mormon temple. And a few of you thought that I'd crossed the line. How can a religion that urges fathers to spend more time at home with their kids be all wrong? Or what gives you the right to be critical of people who promote marriage and family as much as they do? Well, beloved, it's because there's more here than meets the eye. Don't. Expect me to be complimentary to a sect which claims that Jesus is born from sexual relations between God and Mary. Or that Jesus is Lucifer's spirit brother. Or that Jesus himself celebrated his marriages to Mary and Martha. Beloved, you and I need to realize that being a Christian means being a tester. Paul urges the Thessalonian believers and us to test everything. And that means as well, watch out for religious snake oil salesmen. Watch out for those who come at you as being morally upright, respectable, caring people, but who bring a religion that at bottom is at odds with what the Scriptures teach. By their words and their teaching, you shall know them. And not by their slick talk or their friendly faces. And that's what happens in our text too. Look in particular at the words of verse 30. And this thing, the writer says, became a sin. The people went as far as Dan to worship there. The author of one kings, whoever that may have been, aside of course from the primary author, namely the Holy Spirit, calls Jeroboam's new policy and practice a sin. 
It's not just a convenient little bit of liturgical renewal going on here, folks. Yes, and he's right. And it becomes more and more evident in our text as you read it. For look at what happens next. Additional shrines are built throughout the kingdom of the ten tribes. More convenience. A new priesthood is established. Who needs Levites anyway? New feast days are created. The 15th day of the eighth month is picked. Great. Another holiday. And one more thing. The king himself offer sacrifices. And why not? He's the king. Well, you know, on the surface, it seems to fit, and you can make it fit. comes across as kind of natural. can all be rationalized. But our text says it's sin. And it's a sin that we're going to hear much, much more about in the next chapter and in all the chapters to come. Because the sin, this particular sin, echoes like a dirty refrain throughout the Old Testament. So we're not going to dwell on it now. But you know, there is something to take note of here. And it's the fact that there's a trend here. That goes from bad to worse. The process of decay starts with a few bulls. But it quickly spreads to unlawful shrines, self-appointed priests, man-made festivals, and utterly and totally improper worship. Once the rot begins, it's hard to stop. Yes, and all of that, all of that should surely also today make us sensitive and serious. It should make us sensitive to the fact that going astray is not something obvious or in your face. It's subtle. Really, really subtle. It starts slowly. A little adjustment here. A little adjustment there. Gains momentum. And before you know it, a whole lot of stuff has changed. So be sensitive when it comes to the little stuff. Because little stuff is a way of becoming big stuff. And in addition, be serious. Be serious about upholding the principle that we need always, as the people of God, to worship the Lord His way. And not our way. We may like... Less of this and more of that. We may want to make this more palatable and that more attractive or that more exciting. However, the standards of our worship are not to be driven by us, but by the Lord. Take a page out of the book of our Savior. His great and highest aim in life was always, always to make sure that the will of his heavenly Father was being done. And ours should be the same. So, beloved, watch out for alternative or knockoff religions. 
Stay close to the Lord, to his word. Worship him and him alone in the splendor of his holiness. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.